Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. Remember, you can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. I'm Sarah Blakemore. And on the podcast today. Today, we'll be meeting two sisters who transformed their grief into a chain of events that have given new life to so many others. And we're going to talk about getting through tough times and what are some good coping mechanisms. You don't want to miss a minute. Let's get to it. We are so excited here on The Gifted Life to visit with some incredible sisters, Hannah and Bethany Gorolski. How are you, ladies? Good. We're great. Thanks so much for having us. We are smiling big. You guys have inspired us, and we want to share your story with our Gifted Life podcast listeners. Uh, Joey, you said it before, transforming grief into hope for others. We were just like, wow, when we heard about what these two did, right? Right, right. It was amazing to me, and we'll get into it in a little bit. But just you guys' stories, the family bond that you obviously have, the, the wonderful character that, that you know, just emanates from your family. But let's, let's talk about you guys have a tie with donation. And so I'd like to, if I could, go back. So uh, what was the first time that you guys heard anything about organ transplants or, or donation? It was in 2010. We found out that my dad would need a kidney transplant. And at the time, my brother's like, of course, I'll give up my kidney. And he was, I think at that time, 17 and started the workup. And then it was shortly after he turned 19 that he donated a kidney to my dad. And so what were you guys thinking? So the end of his high school career, about to start college, obviously that's your dad. But what were all these emotions that were going on between the family? I was going to say, um... It was amazing, but you also have to think this is a cause we didn't really know anything about. And up to that point, our father had been sick a lot of our lives, and he'd always been okay. So not to say that we didn't take it as something heavy, but Bethany and I were still kids. We were in high school at the time, and our brother was in college, and he swooped in and fixed everything. It's kind of like what the big brother does. And it never really crossed our mind that, like, a, how serious this is and, you know, how fortunate we were that they both came out of that situation, you know, amazing and healthy. But B, what a miracle it was, because like I said, our dad had been sick before and he was always OK. So in our minds, I don't think it ever occurred to us that, you know, this could go poorly. Oh, and what is Big Bro's name? Josh. Josh. Our hero. <laughs> Josh is a hero. Like, wow. Like, I don't know if at that time, if I would have been able to make that decision at that age, you know, it seems like so lo- young, you're still learning things like that's kind of cool, like just a good human. And, and so if I can paint a picture just for the audience. So your dad got really sick and, and needed a kidney transplant. And you talked about, you know, big bro swooping in and saving the day. So in general, we've talked about this uh, in the past. M- many of our, our podcasts uh, centered upon donation after someone has passed. And oftentimes in these situations, the person has to wait at least three or four or five years. Sometimes I've seen, you know, seven years to 10 years 
uh, to be able to get that life-saving organ, especially if it's a kidney, because as most people know, that that's the, 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 the one organ that, that most people, that's the biggest, largest part of our, our, the wait list. So, so then Big Bro comes in and uh, decides that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something heroic and I'm going to swoop in, like you said, and, and save dad's life with donating his own kidney. So, uh, so what an amazing thing for such a young man at that time. So tell us about life. So um, Josh, and tell us dad's name. Mark. Mark. Okay, so Josh donates to Mark, transplant um, successful. So tell us about life after that, after that gift, after he um, had new life breathed into him. It was amazing. He went into his surgery with a creatinine of 17 and woke up with a creatinine of one. Uh, Oh, wow. (laughs) He went home 48 hours after surgery. He said he wanted to walk from the recovery room to his actual room, but they wouldn't let him. (laughs) He was, it was night and day how good he looked. And it was incredible. With a 17 creatinine for those, you know, who, who aren't familiar with those numbers, Generally speaking, you, you can't, your blood has so much nitrogen in it that, that your brain can't even function at that, at that, you know, phase. And then to go from that to normal, mm-hmm. just, just with that one kidney, one, you know, Josh's life-saving gift that he gave. So that, that is amazing. So what, so tell me a little bit, so how, how Josh come out of it? Josh was incredible as always, but. He, this was his first surgery, you know, he hadn't even had his wisdom teeth out or anything. So we kind of joked that he was a little bit of a baby about it. And then, <laughs> but that's what little sisters are for to tease you. That's so right. basically Josh did this over his spring break of his freshman year of college. Um, and he flew back to school about like seven to 10 days later. Um, and by that point he was feeling good and the only real like restriction is on lifting. Um, but you look a little bloated, but pretty normal. But, you know, Josh has always been an avid runner and very like physically fit. So I think it was like within no time that he was good as new. And that was, you know, March of 2011. And then in the summer of 2012, he and my dad competed in the transplant games and participated in that. So Josh has always been very active. And as you can imagine, at his age, there's not a lot of living donors. So he didn't have much competition. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. The the sister-brother relationship. Mm -hmm. And then I'm sitting here wondering if somebody asked my siblings about me, would they be kind? (laughs) So love you guys, Hannah and and Bethany. So, So that was in March of 2011, 2012, transplant games, life's going as normal. Um, then what happens in um, 18? Um, he got sick again originally in 2013. He developed a kidney stone in his transplanted kidney, and it recovered somewhat but not fully. So in 2015, he was relisted for a transplant. But at that point, he was, like, still making urine, and, you know, he was feeling fine. And so I told my dad, I was like, hey, I want to be worked up to donate my kidney to you. Oh, wow. And so I went through that workup in 2016, and then in 2016, like, right around the same time, he developed an infection in his brain from the anti-rejection medication. Mm -hmm. And so he had to go through brain surgery, antibiotics, 
and all that stuff just like down spiraled his kidney failure. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, he was losing weight. His creatinine was in the fives. You know, he just like did not look good. Um, and so they told him like, yeah, you need to be kind of recovered from the brain surgery. So they wanted him to wait a year. And then they were like, you know, your liver's not doing good. You need to gain weight. The skin cancer's back. You know, it just it was one thing after another. And ultimately, surgery's decision was just like, you are too sick to transplant. You're not going to survive the surgery. Mm. And in 2018, we were trying to get him healthy enough for a transplant, doing everything they wanted him to do. He was back on dialysis, getting, you know, he was getting TPN through his veins to feed him. Um, and he just... He was just so sick. Mm-hmm. And then in September 2018, he ended up in the intensive care unit at Northwestern. And they were like, you know what? He's not going to leave the hospital unless it is on hospice. And transplant was like, you're not a good surgical candidate. I can't say if you ever will be. And so my dad did not want a kidney transplant. Um, or he didn't want to do undergo dialysis. And TPN if he wasn't going to get a transplant. And so we decided to take him home on hospice and he died four days later. Now, how old are, are you guys when, when this is happening? I was 25 I, and, and I was 23. 23. Yeah. And so um, you, you tell dad you'd like to, to donate. Tell us your mindset. Obviously, love him and, and we're sorry for your loss, but we love that you're using Thank this you. story to, to honor his legacy and to, and to give hope and save lives. Walk us through your, your thinking at the time. So you want to donate. That's still pretty young to make yeah. that decision. So I saw Josh do it. I was 17 when Josh donated. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing that and seeing how easily both people recovered. I'm like, I want to do that someday. Wow. And, you know, when you're kind of in our family situation, you know, you kind of learn to save your kidney in case dad would need a second kidney. And, you know, so I I was, like, going through nursing school, graduated nursing school, got a job, and, you know, my dad was relisted for a kidney, and I was like, hey, dad, can I give it to you? And, of course, no father wants his daughter to go through Mm. surgery. And so he was, like, kind of hesitant, and I remember the day I told him I was approved to be his donor, he started crying. But I didn't have to think twice about it. I saw Josh go through it. I had had, you know, a couple minor surgeries, had my tonsils out, had eye surgery. I knew I could handle pain. I knew I could handle anesthesia. And I was like, sure, I will do it. Don't even ask me twice. Wow. So walk us through. So you just kind of walked up in the hospital and said, hey, I got one and I want to do this? Or or what's that process like? So our father passed in September of 2018. And... I had also been tested as a potential donor, um, and it at the time made more sense for Bethany to donate to our father if it ever could work out. She was the same blood type, et cetera, et cetera. I'm the baby of the family, so I was just waiting my turn here. Same, um, Anna, same. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so shortly after he passed, I mean, obviously you have all this grief and you're wondering what you're going to do with it. And I think Bethany and I both agreed that we just really, you try to stay busy and you try to stay busy. Um, But one thing I always 
said to Josh, you know, uh, I would donate my kidney in a heartbeat, but you're saving it for dad. So when I knew he didn't need it, I knew I didn't need two kidneys. Um, so I kind of called up the hospital and said, Hey, I had these tests done. I had started to get worked up as a kidney donor. Like what test do I need to redo? And Bethany was doing the same thing and being sisters, you know, we kind of do everything together. And we thought, how fun would it be to do this together? So as we're going through testing and getting approved, and I mean, it does take a while. um, We kind of said, and our one request, like if we can make one, we don't care who the kidney goes to, whoever needs it the most, but could we do this together? So probably in, you know, late February of 2019, I get a call saying, we have a match for you. How do you feel about March 14th, which is, you know, like two weeks away at the time and World Kidney Day. So I'm like, oh, that sounds great. And but all the while wondering, oh, what about Bethany? What about Bethany? And then she gets a call the day later saying, how do you feel about March 15th? And we're like, <laughs> yes, back to back days. <laughs> so and, and did you guys know about the kidney pair donation before then? Or were you just planning to donate to someone that was there at Northwestern? We told Northwestern, hey, just give it to whoever needs it. Our big thing was we didn't want somebody else to go through what we went to. Mm-hmm. So whoever needs it the most, I trusted our coordinators that they would pick the right people to be in the to be involved in this. They knew our dad. And so I'm like, if there's a potential for a chain, great, but I'm not asking you to make a chain. And, you know, we find out a couple months later that more and more people are getting kidneys from us. Mm-hmm. So, so what, what ends up happening is, is that, so, uh, and Hannah, I believe you said you were the first in the, in the chain, so to speak. So, so then that starts kind of a domino effect of one person donating to another person. And then that person's loved one or or the, you know, uh, that person, whoever would have been a living donor for that person, then donates to a different person, and then it just keeps, the domino effect keeps falling one after the other after the other, so that so many people get donations instead of zero, which would have happened because the, the, the that one person didn't have a, a perfect match, you know? So it's amazing that you guys were the dominoes that really started everything falling so that how many people ended up getting donations because of this? Five. Five. People have gotten transplants so far, but the chains have not closed. So they're still in the process of finding matches and wow. pairs. Right. So when we met our recipients back in July, that's like kind of all we knew. So we're hoping maybe here in March will be the one year anniversary and we can maybe get an update and hopefully they're still going and growing. Um, but yeah, what was so great was everyone who was involved had someone who wanted to donate to them. So assuming that's the case, it can keep going for a long, long time. Uh, so we watched um, video. Obviously, this made big news. This is such a great story. Um, and we saw you hugging necks of these people in this chain reaction. Had you met them before? Was that a first time meet? And then explain to me what you're thinking. Like, we started this for my dad. We're honoring our dad. And then look what happened. Like, that's amazing. So we had never met in the hospital when we donated, we were kind of playing like matchmaker with people walking the halls. <laughs> um, so I actually did run into 
and while walking the halls, a woman named Kate, and she was like, I think you, and she had just donated as well. And she goes, I think you donated to my friend, Julie. So we met briefly and it turned out that's what it was. But the amazing thing was like, Julie looked so good then in July when I like actually met her, you know, and she was recovered. It was like, did I meet any of these people in the hospital? None of them looked familiar (laughs) because everyone looked so good. So Uh, I didn't really feel like we met in March because we were both drugged up and whatnot. (laughs) We definitely met in July and we had a didn't know the extent of these chains and didn't know how many people were involved. Um, and to see everyone a doing so well and b carrying on the chains, it, it just meant so much to a be able to, you know, prolong a life and b to see that these are good people, you know, and people you want to stay in contact with and people who respect and honor your story and where you came from and our decision to donate. So hearing your story, it's obviously very powerful. And, you know, to lose your father because he was too ill to receive a donation, you know, a lot of people could take that as, you know, they could get very angry or resentful to the system. I'd like y'all to share why that wasn't the case for y'all, why y'all took this moment and turned it into true altruism and why you started to think of others. The easy answer is that's not who our dad was, and that's not how our wonderful parents raised us. So as I said earlier, our dad was sick a lot of our childhood. And when someone asked him how he was, he had every reason to complain and tell them how terrible he felt. And he always said, I'm good, and then praised it. How are you? You know, he wants to generally, genuinely help others and learn and be so considerate. So A, it is easy to be mad and think, you know, organ donation should have helped us. It could have helped us, given us more time, you know, from the outlook that Josh's kidney lasted about eight years. Maybe Bethany's kidney could have given my dad another eight years. I could have given him a kidney, get another eight years, you know, and then he lives to see us get married and have grandkids. Like it's easy to have that mindset, But going back to who our dad was and how positive and caring and giving he was and the example he set for us, that's just not who he was and that's not how our parents raised us. Um, So really just trying to honor his character and his spirit and his, you know, giving spirit and see what we could do from there. It was really a no brainer. If I knew my dad didn't need my kidney, there was no reason I needed to hold on to it. I mean, oh, my gosh, our jaws are on the floor. That's amazing. It really is amazing. And it shouldn't be taken lightly that, you know, that's for you. You say that's an easy thing and it's a no brainer, but it's truly incredible what y'all have done. So thank Thank you you so much. So let's talk about um, you guys recovery. We have folks who listen to the podcast. One even said, I'm thinking about this, donating a kidney to a stranger. I just wanted to do it was listening to the podcast. So if we have someone like that that's that's listening, what is your recovery and what advice would you give to someone who's uh, maybe thinking about taking that step? We were in the hospital for only one night and I honestly never had my abdomen cut up before, so I had no idea what I was going to expect. And I was shocked in how little pain I was. I'm sure I was high off a bunch of drugs. <laughs> I was shocked. They gave you the good stuff. <laughs> and I was still able to take care of myself. 
I could get up, use the bathroom, take a shower. I didn't need help getting dressed. Is it nice to have mom like get you a cup of water so you don't have to get up? Yes. But we had our post-op appointment on like day, it was like day five for me, day six for Hannah. And I think by like day 10, I was like, I'm not taking naps in the afternoon anymore. I can walk more than a mile without being in pain. I have my energy back. I feel fine. I'm not sore anymore. I was shocked that you heal from a surgery like this because our incisions are like four inches big. And I was sore for like seven to 10 days. Like I thought I'd be sore for like three to four weeks. Mm -hmm. It is truly amazing. Even just in the eight years since our brother Josh donated, like he was stitched up and we were glued together. You know, technology has changed and he did recover quickly. I felt like Bethany and I recovered quickly. I was back at work a week later. Um, granted, I sit at a desk, so nothing too strenuous there. And yes, I did long for like an afternoon nap, but it wasn't like I couldn't keep my eyes open. I mean, and I do that now. So and I, didn't <laughs> I know do I still long for those <laughs> afternoon naps, but what are you going to do? Um, but it really is incredible how your body knows and your one kidney grows and uh, echoing off Stephanie, it's absolutely wonderful to have someone take care of you. And they want to Mm -hmm. see that someone wants to take care of you. Um, That really helps, you know, but at the same time, your body bounces back so fast. And, you know, I feel like it was probably easy to do it while we were young opposed to like later. Cause like I said, I always wanted to donate my kidney. I thought it would be years and years from now, like after my father passed, but as an old man, you know, so I thought I'd be like 40 or 50 donating a kidney. And that's probably a different story, but I feel very fortunate that we bounced back so quickly. And, you know, by the end of the six weeks, they say, you know, where you're not supposed to lift more than a milk jug. I was, you know, ready to work out and all that good stuff. And I couldn't wait to get back to an active lifestyle. My goodness. Um, I love how you guys got people talking about donation. Who wouldn't normally talk about donation through traditional media covering this social media, the comments were so positive and it was just amazing. So not only did you help these people that you got to hug their necks, people worlds away from you guys, which is amazing. Um, so I know that you've done interviews and and those kinds of things. And we try to focus on education. So is there something that came up like a craziest comment or question or something that somebody mentioned that you thought, oh, um, we're going to use our story to help educate in, in, that, in that direction? Well, it's interesting you say that. And I'll let Bethany answer. She might have a different take. But when this was starting to get out in the media, I think people read headlines a lot and not the whole story. No. So it was hard <laughs> for me to read some of the comments because these were clearly people that didn't read the story saying like, why would those girls donate their kidney? If their dad needed a kidney, they probably will too one day. Like, mm. and like, how do you not think that the hospital A wouldn't check for that? And right. like B, we wouldn't know that. So I actually didn't read a lot of comments just because of the ignorance. Um, But yeah, people just read the headlines and assumed, you know, one day we were going to need a kidney and the hospital wouldn't think to check for that. Yeah, that's a good point, though. I'm glad you brought that up. Another thing like we encountered was like the risk of preeclampsia. So the doctors really asked us, they're like, you risk preeclampsia by donating your kidney. And they were like, 
do you want, are you sure you want to do it now? Like you can wait, have kids, come back in 15 liters and your kidney will still be needed. And I was like, no, I'm not going to, like they told you not to get pregnant for the first year. I'm like, I promise you I won't get pregnant within the first year. Like I am healthy now. I am probably the healthiest I am ever going to be. I can financially support myself, like things like that. And so we were just like, and I, a girl I work with donated her kidney to her mom at like probably around the same age. And she has had kids since then. Mm -hmm. And people are like, don't let the preeclampsia scare you. You're going to obviously, when you get pregnant, you're going to have an OB doctor who is going to monitor you if you get preeclampsia. And so I didn't feel like that was a big, I, I mean, it was a risk, but I didn't feel like I was making a, unreasonable choice and like doing this knowing I was going to you know have like health complications down the road determined daughters I love it Mm -hmm. I love it positivity landing on your feet Mm -hmm. and now it's almost a year out since y'all's donation what's your relationship with the with your recipients so we um my recipient um lives like in the Chicago suburbs so whenever she's down for appointment she will um text me and like come visit me at work if I'm working or like I'll like go have lunch with her and her husband. She has a three-year-old as well. Um, she lives in the town next to where my mom lives so over Christmas. Hannah and I met up with her and her son and had lunch. We've gotten pretty close. Um, it's really, it's funny. Like you just have this weird connection with them now. And it's like nothing you like can explain other than the fact that they have your kidney. But it's weird how easy it is to interact with pe- the recipients. And then my recipient, Julie, actually lives in St. George, Utah, and she used to live in the Chicago area. So she was on a transplant list here and one out there and maybe even another one. She'd been waiting for quite a while. Um, So when she's in town for like her six month checkup and her kids and grandkids still live here, um, I do get to see her, which is lovely. And we'll text around the holidays and just because now we're connected um, and it's really fun to have this really random reason to be friends with these complete <laughs> strangers. Um, and then I would say like of the group, it's nice of the like donors and recipients. There was another donor who was in her twenties. Um, her name's Michelle. So shout out to Michelle, but it is, you know, nice that there's another young donor who is doing well and, um, probably a little bit easier to have, uh, friendship and connection with someone who is younger in our age and going through the donation process just like we did. And she wanted to donate so her dad could get a kidney, which he did. Mm. We love this story. And we're so honored that we got to know Mark, your dad, through what you guys yes, did. Thank they, you. He raised some great kids, man, some good humans in this world, mm-hmm. including Josh. Hey, Josh, we didn't forget about you. Uh, <laughs> handsome guy. We watched your interviews. Very well spoken as well. Um, and, and we want to continue to follow your story. We hope that you come back on the, the podcast as um, we get further removed from the actual transplant. And then all that has happened because you guys gave these milestones that these families are now able to have mm-hmm. because you guys stepped forward. Um, Hannah, Bethany, if you're ever in Louisiana, Hey, check us out. (laughs) Mardi Gras is around the corner. (laughs) There we go. But we love it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you so much for having us. And we'll definitely keep you updated on if we meet other recipients or Mm -hmm. see the chain grow, we'll keep you all posted. Oh, we'd love that. Thank you, ladies. Of course. Thanks so much. 
At this point in the podcast, we're taking a moment for mental health. Yeah, and today Sarah's going to help us get through tough times. What you got for us today, Sarah? All right, so today we're going to be talking about some coping mechanisms for those tough times. Now, tough times can be a lot of things. It could be you just recently lost a loved one, you lost your job, you're having some family issues, financial issues, whatever it is that's tough. We're going to go through some really quick, very helpful coping mechanisms. Great. So the first one we're talking about is faith and spirituality. So if that's already part of your life, it's really good to turn back to those, you know, those foundational things that make up who you are, like your spirituality or faith. And I know mm-hmm. it's um, when talking to people, it is very helpful. Right? right. Also, go and find your community and your connection. We all need support and we all need that from other people. So if you're going through a tough time, find those supportive people in your community and yeah. connect with them. Does that include my drinking buddies? Or <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that that's a safe space for you. Like if you need to go have a drink your with people. your friends, that's connection. Human connection gets us through tough times. I like that. We have a... Um a veteran who is in our community and like retired, like mm-hmm. retired, retired to where has nothing to do. Mm-hmm. So then he reached out and says, I need, I need something to, I need a purpose. Yeah. Can I start volunteering? And I was mm-hmm. like, man, I love to hear that. Yes. Yes. But that's his way of, of He went of and found coming. an action yeah. that connects him with other people. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it just makes his days easier and better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing, if you're creative or if you're into the arts, go and explore that take classes, find other people who are interested in the same things and get that creative air going because mm-hmm. that really that energy is really helpful to people through tough times. Right, yeah. And also, this one's going to be kind of difficult, but look for change. Do something different. Find something to change up your daily routine or do something that's different for you that enables you to adapt to the troublesome time. I like the challenge, but mm-hmm. change makes uh, yeah. me so nervous. Oh. It doesn't a, have to be every day. It's a be, challenge just within the change yeah. itself. <laughs> that's you right. Know, so. And I know change is very hard for a lot of people. But even if you do something once a month, that's just different from what you normally mm-hmm. do. And it challenges you and it brings, you know, different energy and lightness into your routine and your mental health. And a focus. It gives you a different focus. Uh, you know, if even if, like you said, if it's mm-hmm. once a week, once a month, you can look forward to, to that new yeah. challenge that you've got that you hadn't had before. Right. It's a distraction, too. Right. You know, it's something new that distracts you from what's troubling you. Now, I mentioned the once a week or once a month thing. Mm-hmm. So how would you know if, if it changes too much or is there a such thing as too much change in this situation? Yes. And that can actually be there is too much, too big, too fast. So more so instead of thinking of big changes like, you know, like selling your house or getting a new job, I'm talking about do something that's different. Take a pottery class, go to a poetry reading, do something that's different that gets you out of your everyday routine because it brings you a new purpose, new focus. It brings something new to your life that adds value. Mm-hmm. And the last one's probably the most important, which is self-care and self-compassion. So really have compassion for yourself and know that it's okay to take care of yourself first. Mm-hmm. Because you can only take care of others when you yourself are taken care of. I yeah. like that one. And this new year, I was like, okay, every night, 10 minutes, if I want to read a book or mm-hmm. do something mindless. I know, Joey, don't make a joke there. But, but something <laughs> to get away from mom work and and all that something just for me i would say challenge change it from mindless to mindful because what you call mindless is actually mindful so okay i'm already already (laughs) helping it's already (laughs) helping and you know once you take care of yourself you can be that better mom you can get through those tough times because you are prepared and you're equipped 
and you feel good about yourself too. I like it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Took notes. Hope you did too. Uh, maybe you have a topic you would like Sarah to cover. Info at thegiftedlife.org. We'd love to hear from you. In every episode of the Gifted Life podcast, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Scott Fournier. And we learn about Scott from his family. In February 91, my 26-month-old son Scott pulled a color television over onto him. Within 24 hours, we were told by our neurologist that Scott was brain dead and some very difficult decisions would have to be made in those next few days. As I sat by his side while family members came to say their final goodbyes, I couldn't help but think to myself just how sweet a little boy he was and what a good-hearted boy he was. I decided to discuss organ donation with my husband. In 1991, donor-recipient information was closed. Through a chance encounter at Oshner in New Orleans, a neighbor put the pieces together and realized who received Scott's liver, a little girl named Bridget who was waiting on a second transplant. Letters were written between families. Bridget's mother contacted us and decided it was time we meet her sweet daughter. After that, we have remained very close and see each other as much as possible. The same year of Scott's passing, I had a daughter named Danielle. Bridget served in our daughter Danielle's wedding in 2012. Our lives have been intertwined ever since. We may never really know why this accident happened, but he is our hero. For more on Scott's story and to see his sweet face, check out our hero stories on lopa.org. And now we pause and say thank you to Scott for the gift of life. Our question and answer segment today. How does a kidney chain work? Do the donors coordinate the chain or is it coordinated on the transplant center level? Good question today. Thanks for sending that in. Joey? So, Lori, oftentimes with a kidney pair donation or these chains, it's initiated from someone who intended on donating to someone they know. Mm-hmm. And what happens uh, oftentimes is that they aren't a good match, mm-hmm. but they really want to donate. And, uh, and of course, their, their loved one or their friend or whoever it is still needs a kidney. So, uh, so what they've started doing, and it's, it's becoming more and more uh, familiar and often, uh, is that they then start pairing up with others and, and continue links in the chain through other working collaboratively with other transplant centers instead of just looking within. So you see these dominoes, as I mentioned before, from whether it's uh, Louisiana and then to Chicago or to Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they continue pairing up, pairing up until finally there's a closure of, of this chain. So it's, it's essentially usually initiated like that through the transplant center and then the transplant center in is where you'll see the the chains become linked through UNOS, you know, United Network of Organ Sharing, but uh, but it's a collaboration of a few of these entities. It's not the responsibility of the donor himself or herself to coordinate this chain. Obviously, they don't have any part in that, you know. It's it's the the responsibility of the transplant center working with UNOS and through UNOS with other transplant centers. So that's kind of how the chain uh, kidney pair donation works. All right. And so I'm just curious. I'm going to have one more question for you. So the Goralski sisters that we interviewed on this podcast, um, what if one of those sisters needed a kidney? Like, is there a process for for that? Yes. So great question. Uh, Just a few years ago, I can't remember the exact uh, year, but probably two or three years ago, 
uh, it was uh, implemented in, in OPTN, the, our, our organ transplant pro- procurement network, uh, UNOS, basically what I've, I've, I'll usually refer to them as UNOS since UNOS is the contractor for OPTN. They put it into a, a place that if someone was a donor, whether it was in the kidney pair donation or they were a living donor for someone they knew, mm-hmm. If they should then later on become uh, in need of a kidney, they automatically move to the top of the list. So they're the first mm. ones to get when that person when there's a match. Yeah, that's good. That sounds right. If you want more information on this, go ahead and listen to episode 87 of the Gifted Life podcast where we dig into this as well. And if you have questions you want answered on the podcast, email us at info at thegiftedlife.org or you can call us. And that'll do it for episode 127 of The Gifted Life. Wow, right? Yeah, wow. <laughs> I mean, what a special group of people. That family is amazing. An inspiration. Three siblings, three siblings that mm-hmm. have all donated. And then you've got Hannah and Bethany, who, of course, came on our show and talked about you know their donation process and the fact that they donate to people that they've never met. Yeah, wow, right. what a journey, and we appreciate them sharing their story. We hope to uh, keep in touch with them. And we want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, remember, you can register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor anytime, registerme.org. Hopefully, we inspired you as well. And remember, the best place to find us is our website, thegiftedlife.org. Listen there or anywhere you listen to your podcast, whether it's Apple, Google, or Spotify. If you do listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and subscribe because it really helps others find us. Or if you're on social media, like our page on Facebook, The Gifted Life Podcast, and follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. You could also give us a ring, 504-648-3477. Share your story with us. We may use your audio on this podcast. Our goal is to make life happen. We are a team, and we hope that you go out today and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. We hope you have a good one. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Caraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. Troy Perez.